0: section 53 of man and wife this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer go to librivox.org man and woman by wilkie collins 14th scene portland place chapter the 46 a scotch marriage it was saturday the 3rd of october the day on which the assertion of Arnold's marriage to Anne Sylvester was to be put to the proof. Toward two o'clock in the afternoon, Blanche and her stepmother entered the drawing-room of Lady Lundy's townhouse in Portland Place. Since the previous evening, the weather had altered for the worse. The rain, which had set in from an early hour that morning, still fell. Viewed from the drawing-room windows, the desolation of Portland Place and the dead season, wore its aspect of deepest gloom. The dreary opposite houses were all shut up. The black mud was inches deep in the roadway. The soot, floating in tiny black particles, mixed with the falling rain and heightened the dirty obscurity of the rising mist. Foot passengers and vehicles, succeeding each other at rare intervals, left great gaps of silence absolutely uninterrupted by sound. Even the grinders of organs were mute and the wandering dogs of the street were too wet to bark. Looking back from the view out of Lady Lundy's state windows to the view in Lady Lundy's state room, the melancholy that reigned without was more than matched by the melancholy that reigned within. The house had been shut up for the season it had not been considered necessary during its mistress's brief visit to disturb the existing state of things. Coverings of dim brown hue shrouded the furniture. The chandeliers hung invisible in enormous bags. The silent clocks, hibernated under extinguishers, dropped over them two months since. The tables, drawn up in corners, loaded with ornaments, at other times had nothing but pen, ink, and paper, suggestive of the coming proceedings, placed on them now. The smell of the house was musty. The voice of the house was still. One melancholy maid haunted the bedrooms upstairs like a ghost. One melancholy man, appointed to admit the visitors, sat solitary in the lower regions. The last of the flunkies, moldering in an extinct servant's hall not a word passed in the drawing room between Lady Lundy and Blanche. Each waited the appearance of the persons concerned in the coming inquiry, absorbed in her own thoughts. Their situation at the moment was a solemn burlesque of the situation of two ladies who are giving an evening party and who are waiting to receive their guests. Did neither of them see this, or seeing it, did they shrink from acknowledging it? In similar positions, who does not shrink? The occasions are many on which we have excellent reason to laugh when the tears are in our eyes, but only children are bold enough to follow the impulse. So strangely in human existence does the mockery of what is serious mingle with the serious reality itself. That nothing but our own self-respect preserves our gravity at some of the most important emergencies in our lives. The two ladies waited the coming ordeal together gravely, as became the occasion. The silent maid flitted noiselessly upstairs. The silent man waited motionless in the lower regions. Outside, the street was a desert. Inside, the house was a tomb. The church clock struck the hour two. At the same moment, the first of the persons concerned in the investigation arrived. Lady Lundy waited composedly for the opening of the drawing room door. Blanche started and trembled. Was it Arnold? Was it Anne? The door opened and Blanche drew a breath of relief. The first arrival was only Lady Lundy's solicitor invited to attend the proceedings on her ladyship's behalf. He was one of that large class of purely mechanical and perfectly mediocre persons connected with the practice of the law, who will probably, in a more advanced state of science, be superseded by machinery. He made himself useful in altering the arrangement of the tables and chairs so as to keep the contending parties effectually separated from each other. He also entreated lady lundie to bear in mind that he knew nothing of scotch law and that he was there in the capacity of a friend only this done he sat down and looked out with silent interest at the rain as if it was an operation of nature which he had never had an opportunity of inspecting before the next knock at the door heralded the arrival of a visitor of a totally different order the melancholy man-servant announced, Captain Newenden. Possibly, in deference to the occasion, possibly in defiance of the weather, the captain had taken another backward step toward the days of his youth. He was painted and padded, wigged and dressed, to represent the abstract idea of a male human being of 5 and 20 in robust health. There might have been a little stiffness in the region of the waist and a slight want of firmness in the eyelid and the chin. Otherwise, there was the fiction of five and twenty, founded in appearance on the fact of five and thirty, with the truth invisible behind it, counting seventy years. Wearing a flower in his buttonhole and carrying a jaunty little cane in his hand, brisk, rosy, smiling, perfumed, the captain's appearance brightened the dreary room. It was pleasantly suggestive of a morning visit from an idle young man. He appeared to be a little surprised to find Blanche present on the scene of approaching conflict. Lady Lundy thought it due to herself to explain, "'My stepdaughter is here in direct defiance of my entreaties and my advice.' Persons may present themselves, whom it is, in my opinion, improper, she should see. Revelations will take place which no young woman in her position should hear. She insists on it, Captain Newenden, and I am obliged to submit. The captain shrugged his shoulders and showed his beautiful teeth. Blanche was far too deeply interested in the coming ordeal to care to defend herself. She looked as if she had not even heard what her stepmother had said of her. The solicitor remained absorbed in the interesting view of the falling rain. Lady Lundy asked after Mrs. Glenarm. The captain, in reply, described his niece's anxiety as something, something, something in short only to be indicated by shaking his ambrosial curls and waving his jaunty cane. Mrs. Delamain was staying with her until her uncle returned with the news. And where was Julius? Detained in Scotland by election business. And Lord and Lady Holchester? Lord and Lady Holchester knew nothing about it. There was another knock at the door. Blanche's pale face turned paler still. Was it Arnold? Was it Anne? After a longer delay than usual, the servant announced, mr jeffrey delamayn and mr moy Geoffrey, slowly entering first saluted the two ladies in silence and noticed no one else the london solicitor withdrawing himself for a moment from the absorbing prospect of the rain pointed to the places reserved for the newcomer and for the legal adviser whom he had brought with him Geoffrey seated himself without so much as a glance round the room Leaning his elbows on his knees, he vacantly traced patterns on the carpet with his clumsy oaken walking stick. Stolid indifference expressed itself in his lowering brow and his loosely hanging mouth. The loss of the race and the circumstances accompanying it appeared to have made him duller than usual and heavier than usual, and that was all. Captain Newenden, approaching to speak to him, stopped halfway hesitated, thought better of it, and addressed himself to Mr. Moy. Jeffrey's legal adviser, a Scotsman of the ruddy, ready, and convivial type, cordially met the advance. He announced, in reply to the captain's inquiry, that the witnesses, Mrs. Inchbear and Bishop Riggs, were waiting below until they were wanted in the housekeeper's room. Had there been any difficulty in finding them? Not the least. Mrs. Inchbear was, as a matter of course, at her hotel. Inquiries being set on foot for Bishop Riggs, it appeared that he and the landlady had come to an understanding and that he had returned to his old post of head waiter at the inn. The captain and Mr. Moy kept up the conversation between them, thus begun with unflagging ease and spirit theirs were the only voices heard in the trying interval that elapsed before the next knock was heard at the door at last it came there could be no doubt now as to the persons who might next be expected to enter the room lady lundie took her stepdaughter firmly by the hand she was not sure of what blanche's first impulse might lead her to do for the first time in her life blanche left her hand willingly in her stepmother's grasp. The door opened and they came in. Sir Patrick Lundy entered first, with Anne Sylvester on his arm. Arnold Brinkworth followed them. Both Sir Patrick and Anne bowed in silence to the persons assembled. Lady Lundy ceremoniously returned her brother-in-law's salute, and pointedly abstained from noticing Anne's presence in the room. Blanche never looked up. Arnold advanced to her with his hand held out. Lady Lundy rose and motioned him back. Not yet, Mr. Brinkworth, she said, in her most quietly merciless manner. Arnold stood, heedless of her, looking at his wife. His wife lifted her eyes to his. The tears rose in them on the instant. "'Arnold's dark complexion turned ashy pale "'under the effort that it cost him to command himself. "'I won't distress you,' he said gently, "'and turned back again to the table "'at which Sir Patrick and Anne were seated together apart from the rest. "'Sir Patrick took his hand and pressed it in silent approval. "'The one person who took no part, even as spectator, in the events that followed the appearance of sir patrick and his companions in the room was Geoffrey. the only change visible in him was a change in the handling of his walking stick instead of tracing patterns on the carpet it beat a tattoo for the rest there he sat with his heavy head on his breast and his brawny arms on his knees weary of it by anticipation before it had begun sir patrick broke the silence he addressed himself to his sister-in-law. Lady Lundy, are all the persons present whom you expected to see here today? The gathered venom in Lady Lundy's seized the opportunity of planting its first sting. All whom I expected are here, she answered, and more than I expected, she added with a look at Anne. The look was not returned, was not even seen, from the moment when she had taken her place by Sir Patrick, Anne's eyes had rested on Blanche. They never moved. They never for an instant lost their tender sadness when the woman who hated her spoke. All that was beautiful and true in that noble nature seemed to find its one sufficient encouragement in Blanche. As she looked once more at the sister of the unforgotten days of old, its native beauty of expression shone out again in her worn and weary face every man in the room but geoffrey looked at her and every man but geoffrey felt for her sir patrick addressed a second question to his sister-in-law is there any one here to represent the interests of geoffrey Delamayn?" he asked lady Lundy. "'referred Sir Patrick to Geoffrey himself. "'Without looking up, Geoffrey motioned with his big brown hand "'to Mr. Moy, sitting by his side. "'Mr. Moy, holding the legal rank in Scotland, "'which corresponds to the rank held by solicitors in England, "'rose and bowed to Sir Patrick "'with a courtesy due to a man eminent in his time at the Scottish Bar. "'I represent Mr. Delamain,' he said. I congratulate myself sir patrick on having your ability and experience to appeal to in the conduct of the pending inquiry sir patrick returned the compliment as well as the bow it is i who should learn from you he answered i have had time mr moy to forget what i once knew lady lundy looked from one to the other with unconcealed impatience as these formal courtesies were exchanged between the lawyers "'Allow me to remind you, gentlemen, of the suspense that we are suffering at this end of the room,' she said, and permit me to ask when you propose to begin. Sir Patrick looked invitingly at Mr. Moy. Mr. Moy looked invitingly at Sir Patrick. More formal courtesies, a polite contest this time as to which of the two learned gentlemen should permit the other to speak first mr moy's modesty proving to be quite immovable sir patrick ended it by opening the proceedings i am here he said to act on behalf of my friend mr arnold brinkworth i beg to present him to you mr moy as the husband of my niece to whom he was lawfully married on the seventh of september last at the church of saint margaret in the parish of hawley kent i have a copy of the marriage certificate here "'if you wish to look at it.' "'Mr. Moy's modesty declined to look at it. "'Quite needless, Sir Patrick, "'I admit that a marriage ceremony took place "'on the date named between the persons named, "'but I contend that it was not a valid marriage. "'I say on behalf of my client here present, "'Mr. Geoffrey Dalamayne, "'that Arnold Brinkworth was married at a prior date "'to the 7th of September last, namely on the fourteenth of august in this year and at a place called craig fairney in scotland to a lady named Anne sylvester now living and present among us as i understand at this moment sir patrick presented Anne. this is the lady mr moy mr moy bowed and made a suggestion to save needless formalities sir patrick shall we take the question of identity as established on both sides Sir Patrick agreed with his learned friend. Lady Lundy opened and shut her fan in undisguised impatience. The London solicitor was deeply interested. Captain Newenden, taking out his handkerchief and using it as a screen, yawned behind it to his heart's content. Sir Patrick res- resumed. "'You assert the prior marriage,' he said to his colleague. "'It rests with you to begin.' Mr. Moy cast a preliminary look round him at the persons assembled. The object of our meeting here, he said, is, if I am not mistaken, of a twofold nature. In the first place, it is thought desirable by a person who has a special interest in the issue of this inquiry. He glanced at the captain. The captain suddenly became attentive. To put my client's assertion relating to Mr. Brinkworth's marriage to the proof. In the second place, we are all equally desirous, whatever difference of opinion may otherwise exist, to make this informal inquiry a means, if possible, of avoiding the painful publicity which would result from an appeal to a court of law. At those words, the gathered venom in Lady Lundy planted its second sting under cover of a protest addressed to Mr. Moy. I beg to inform you, sir, on behalf of my stepdaughter, she said, that we have nothing to dread from the widest publicity. We consent to be present at what you call this informal inquiry, reserving our right to carry the matter beyond the four walls of this room. I am not referring now to Mr. Brinkworth's chance of clearing himself from an odious suspicion which rests upon him and upon another person Present. That is an after matter. The object immediately before us, so far as a woman can pretend to understand it, is to establish my stepdaughter's right to call Mr. Brinkworth to account in the character of his wife. If the result so far fails to satisfy us in that particular, we shall not hesitate to appeal to a court of law. She leaned back in her chair and opened her fan and looked round her with the air of a woman who called society to witness that she had done her duty. An expression of pain crossed Blanche's face while her stepmother was speaking. Lady Lundy took her hand for the second time. Blanche resolutely and pointedly withdrew it, Sir Patrick noticing the action with special interest. Before Mr. Moy could say a word in answer, Arnold Centered the general attention on himself by suddenly interfering in the proceedings blanche looked at him a bright flash of color appeared on her face and left it again sir patrick noted the change of color and observed her more attentively than ever arnold's letter to his wife with time to help it had plainly shaken her ladyship's influence over blanche after what Lady Lundy has said in my wife's presence, Arnold burst out in his straightforward boyish way. I think I ought to be allowed to say a word on my side. I only want to explain how it was I came to go to Craig Fernie at all, and I challenge Mister Geoffrey Delamayn to deny it if he can. His voice rose at the last words, and his eyes brightened with indignation as he looked at Geoffrey. Mr. Moy appealed to his learned friend. "'With submission, Sir Patrick, to your better judgment,' he said, "'this young gentleman's proposal seems to be a little out of place at the present stage of the proceedings.' "'Pardon me,' answered Sir Patrick, "'you have yourself described the proceedings as representing an informal inquiry.' An informal proposal with submission to your better judgment, Mr. Moy, is hardly out of place under those circumstances, is it? Mr. Moy's inexhaustible modesty gave way without a struggle. The answer to which he received had the effect of puzzling him at the outset of the investigation. A man of Sir Patrick's experience must have known, that Arnold's mere assertion of his own innocence could be productive of nothing but useless delay in the proceedings. And yet he sanctioned that delay. Was he privately on the watch for any accidental circumstance which might help him to better a case that he knew to be a bad one? Permitted to speak, Arnold spoke. The unmistakable accent of truth was in every word that he uttered. He gave a fairly coherent account of events, from the time when Geoffrey had claimed his assistance at the lawn party to the time when he found himself at the door of the inn at Craig Fairney. There Sir Patrick interfered and closed his lips. He asked leave to appeal to Geoffrey to confirm him. Sir Patrick amazed Mr. Moy by sanctioning this irregularity also. Arnold sternly addressed himself to Geoffrey. Do you deny that what I have said is true, he asked. Mr. Moy did his duty by his client. You are not bound to answer, he said, unless you wish it yourself. Geoffrey slowly lifted his heavy hand and confronted the man whom he had betrayed. I deny every word of it, he answered, with a stolid defiance of tone and manner. Have we had enough of assertion and counter-assertion, Sir Patrick, by this time? asked Mr. Moy with undiminished politeness. After first forcing Arnold, with some difficulty, to control himself, Sir Patrick raised Mr. Moy's astonishment to the culminating point. For reasons of his own, he determined to strengthen the favorable impression which Arnold's statement had plainly produced on his wife before the inquiry proceeded a step further. I must throw myself on your indulgence, Mr. Moy, he said. I have not had enough of assertion and counter-assertion even yet. Mr. Moy leaned back in his chair with a mixed expression of bewilderment and resignation. Either his colleague's intellect was in a failing state or his colleague had some purpose in view which had not openly asserted itself yet. He began to suspect that the right reading of the riddle was involved in the latter of those two alternatives. Instead of entering any fresh protest, he wisely waited and watched. Sir Patrick went on unblushingly from one irregularity to another. I request Mr. Moy's permission to revert to the alleged marriage on the 14th of August at Craig Fairney, he said. Arnold Brinkworth, answer for yourself in the presence of the persons here assembled in all that you said and all that you did, while you were at the inn, were you not solely influenced by the wish to make Miss Sylvester's position as little painful to her as possible, and by anxiety to carry out the instructions given to you by Mr. Geoffrey Delmaine? Is that the whole truth? That is the whole truth, Sir Patrick. On the day when you went to Craig Fairney, had you not "'a few hours previously applied for my permission to marry my niece. "'I applied for your permission, Sir Patrick, and you gave it to me. "'From the moment when you entered the inn to the moment when you left it, "'were you absolutely innocent of the slightest intention to marry Miss Sylvester. "'No such thing as the thought of marrying Miss Sylvester ever entered my head. "'And this you say on your word of honour as a gentleman?' "'on my word of honour as a gentleman.' "'Sir Patrick turned to Anne. "'Was it a matter of necessity, Miss Sylvester, "'that you should appear in the assumed character "'of a married woman on the 14th of August last "'at the Craig Fernie Inn?' "'Anne looked away from Blanche for the first time. "'She replied to Sir Patrick quietly, readily, firmly, "'Blanche looking at her and listening to her "'with eager interest. "'I went to the inn alone, Sir Patrick.' The landlady refused in the plainest terms to let me stay there unless she was first satisfied that I was a married woman. Which of the two gentlemen did you expect to join you at the inn? Mr. Arnold Brinkworth or Mr. Geoffrey Delamayn? Mr. Geoffrey Delamayn. When Mr. Arnold Brinkworth came in his place and said what was necessary to satisfy the scruples of the landlady, you understood that he was acting in your interests for motives of kindness only and under the instructions of Mr. Geoffrey Dalmain? I understood that, and I objected as strongly as I could to Mr. Brinkworth placing himself in a false position on my account. Did your objection proceed from any knowledge of the Scottish law of marriage and of the position in which the peculiarities of that law might place Mr. Brinkworth I had no knowledge of the Scottish law. I had a vague dislike and dread of the deception which Mr. Brinkworth was practicing on the people of the inn, and I feared it might lead to some possible misinterpretation of me on the part of a person whom I dearly loved. That person being my niece? Yes. You appealed to Mr. Brinkworth, knowing of his attachment to my niece, in her name and for her sake, to leave you to shift for yourself? I did. As a gentleman who had given his promise to help and protect a lady in the absence of a person whom she had depended on to join her, he refused to leave you to shift by yourself? Unhappily, he refused on that account. From first to last, you were absolutely innocent of the slightest intention to marry Mr. Brinkworth? i answer sir patrick as mr brinkworth has answered no such thing as the thought of marrying him ever entered my head and this you say on your oath as a christian woman on my oath as a christian woman sir patrick looked round at blanche her face was hidden in her hands her stepmother was vainly appealing to her to compose herself in the moment of silence that followed mr Moy interfered in the interests of his client. I waive my claim, Sir Patrick, to put any questions on my side. I merely desire to remind you, and to remind the company present, that all that we have just heard is mere assertion on the part of two persons strongly interested in extricating themselves from a position which fatally compromises them both the marriage which they deny i am now waiting to prove not by assertion on my side but by appeal to competent witnesses after a brief consultation with her own solicitor lady lundy followed mr moy in stronger language still i wish you to understand sir patrick before you proceed any farther that i shall remove my step daughter from the room if any more attempts are made to harrow her feelings and mislead her judgment. I want words to express my sense of this most cruel and unfair way of conducting the inquiry. The London lawyer followed, stating his professional approval of his client's view. As her ladyship's legal adviser, he said, I support the protest which her ladyship has just made. Even Captain Newenden agreed in the general disapproval of Sir Patrick's conduct. Hear, here," said the captain, when the lawyer had spoken. Quite right, I must say, quite right. Apparently impenetrable to all due sense of his position, Sir Patrick addressed himself to Mr. Moy, as if nothing had happened. Do you wish to produce your witnesses at once? he asked. I have not the least objection to meet your views on the understanding that I am permitted to return to the proceedings as interrupted at this point. Mr. Moy considered. The adversary, there could be no doubt of it by this time, had something in reserve, and the adversary had not yet shown his hand. It was more immediately important to lead him into doing this than to insist on rights and privileges of the purely formal sort nothing could shake the strength of the position which mr moy occupied the longer sir patrick's irregularities delayed the proceedings the more irresistibly the plain facts of the case would assert themselves with all the force of contrast out of the mouths of the witnesses who were in attendance downstairs he determined to wait reserving my right of objection sir patrick he answered i beg you to go on end of section 53 part one